onboarding. Yeah. That's a fun topic. Sometimes. So I've been a consultant now for for a bit over a year and uh, been onboarded uh, at a customer or a client twice and been on, onboarded on the uh, consultant company once, uh, which is a good thing since I've only started there once. And I think I'm still a beginner when it comes to onboarding. And I've seen a couple of different uh, attempts or methods to onboard consultants. Um, in the uh, first place I worked, or the first, I still don't know what this word is in English, uppdrag. Uh, so a client engagement or a contract, uh, it depends on what you're trying to say, essentially. Yeah, one of those. Uh, <laughs> so at the first uh, client engagement, it's a fun word. Um, I got the stuff I needed to work, like a laptop and all that stuff. And then a uh, contact this person on Teams and they will help you out. Uh, so I got home, nothing worked. And I had to return uh, to office, to the office at the same day and get everything sorted out. And it took a couple of days. Uh, but then I contacted him again and he said, well, you can always do this big nebulous thing. Um, and then I did that. So I guess that's not a very good onboarding, but I had fun. Uh, <laughs> and in the next case, uh, there was this, the same trouble with hardware and getting things working like VPN, getting the whole dev environment set up was also hard. In th that case, there was a more up to date getting started guide, but it still wasn't enough. And there I didn't have anything to do uh, for a couple of weeks or I, I after after a while I got I got some bug fixes to do and uh, clean up this thing and so on but everyone was so busy with things and the third party partner or the partner that uh, I was going to integrate against integrate our systems against uh, they weren't done yet Mm. so I didn't really have anything to do uh, so that onboarding was also kind of meh uh, and that onboarding really started the thoughts about what's a good onboarding and how do you get someone up to speed in a very short time because as a consultant I'm not cheap I cost quite a lot per hour uh, and it doesn't really feel like my responsibility that the company should have their ducks in a row. Isn't that the correct <laughs> metaphor? Yeah, that's that's. Uh, yeah, actually, that is an English language idiom. I was like, no, how do you translate that? Ankurporat. But you don't, because it's yeah, that's the correct English uh, expression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> English. I was trying to translate from the wrong direction. I've been speaking a little bit too much English recently. Yeah. Yeah. So I 
the responsibility thing is is sort of one thing on its own and i think so the way i tackle things as a consultant i consider it my responsibility to get up to speed and their responsibility to provide me answers when i'm stuck yeah uh, and sometimes they need to provide the very foundation for me to get started so if there is hardware requirements thankfully i've i've dodged that bullet nice so i haven't had to check out a company laptop or anything like that but if there those things exist of course they will have to provide that otherwise it's mostly pointless or maybe you could log into their github and start reading code but it's a if you can't or aren't allowed to sort of clone the project and start trying to set it up i i think that's uh that's a major stopping point yep but so i make a difference or i don't make a difference i i delineate between onboarding me as a consultant and how i think one should onboard an employee cool and if you're treating an employee and a, if you're treating a consultant or contract worker as an employee, um, which makes sense if they're doing sort of staff augmentation or will be with you for a long time and doing the same things your employees are doing, which is common. Yep, I do that. Yeah. In that case, you should just tackle it mostly like you're tackling onboarding an employee. And when you're onboarding an employee, everything is on you. The employee should be doing their best to get up and running and you should be providing all the support for that yep in my book and that also includes like dedicate a person to helping get the person on board and up to speed and working make sure there's space in that person's time life work for supporting the effort yeah otherwise everything will take just take longer Mm. but a good onboarding i think like good documentation is important uh having someone sit down with you and uh talk through the sort of flow of for example a code project can be incredibly helpful if there's a lot of services that need to be stood up uh or like if you have a complex architecture then maybe you start with the, the big diagram yeah and like, okay, these are the parts, these are the things we have, these are the parts you're going to work on, this, 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 uh, and try to break it down. I personally tend to dive into like, okay, I, I know I have this task and I want to find where in the code would this task happen. And then I start reading out from there. And as I'm doing that and trying to trace it sort of from some deep hole of uh, like maybe i started with the idea that i'm going to change an error message or change the messaging of something and it's deeply nested in a code project then i will find that string and then i will figure out how that string gets to a user yeah which will tell me one path through the system and it will expose me to everything that touches that path so usually routers and usually sort of the entry points for a routing system for web services at least. So that's one way of doing it. 
but that assumes your you actually know what part of the system you're going to be doing things in and that there's uh, some kind of scope in place. Yeah, that makes things very much easier. Otherwise, I guess it's one of those um, uh, questions about how how much agency do you have to um, figure out what you're supposed to do? Like, is it your job to figure out what you are going to do? Or is it the company's job or the customer's job? And all that. Who decides? Yeah, and I think there's... Uh, who in the relationship has that responsibility mostly boils down to the shape of the relationship. It's like if you're the employee, uh, then I think it's implicitly also that um, it's implicit that the company employing you need to make sure that you have everything you need to succeed. Yep. I don't, I'm not saying this is always the case and I'm not saying companies are good at this, uh, but, but I think that's part of the model of that relationship. Yeah, And with a contract worker, that process is similar. And when you're, if I start to differentiate into a sort of a consultant that isn't doing staff augmentation or a consultant that is uh, somewhat more high-end or self-motivated or the way I view myself and my relationship to my clients, I don't expect them to do much to onboard me but that's because i don't expect much <laughs> so many companies are poor at do a poor job of onboarding yeah and i don't expect them to do a good job of onboarding me i just simply uh, ask for the very basic access i need and then i pose any questions that show up as i'm setting things up and if I get a rundown of the system or if I get a tour, that's great. But I've definitely started at companies and just like, okay, time to get this project running. Okay, the, the readme seems to say some sane things, so let's follow that one. Okay, now I'm hitting this issue. This looks like I need credentials for the Docker Hub or for the GitHub repo, or maybe I don't have access to this thing. And then I start asking questions. But while I'm sending those questions off on some Slack somewhere, I'm usually also plugging away at seeing if I can still get it up. Yeah. Uh, because I don't wait. It's just not in my nature. And then I might as well make, I guess, a competitive advantage of it and be a self, self-sufficient self onboarder. <laughs> but I don't think this is a good idea for sort of employee onboarding. I don't even think it's a particularly good idea for consultant and contractor onboarding. Because if you're bringing on external resources for development, continuous development work, put a process in place, uh, figure out how you how you do that in an efficient way. And I think that's, I guess that's what you're sort of looking for or asking about. Like, yeah. How do you do that well? Yeah. 
And I think like recognizing that regardless of what kind of documentation you have, there's bound to be issues that a human needs to address. You might be able, no, you should be able to script setting up a new, uh, like actually doing the admin of onboarding, sort of setting up accounts and stuff. That's actually scriptable, generally speaking. Yeah, I would say it depends, but it should be scriptable. Yeah, uh, so if you have a lot of HR systems and stuff, uh, maybe that's not easy, trivial to script. But if you have, for all the developer tools, for example, yeah, like GitHub is scriptable. Oh, yes. Uh, I think Docker Hub is probably scriptable, I would assume. It should be. Uh, and any kind of access like that, like I'm I've been working with a client who uses auth0 for all the login into the system and I think those like that system could definitely do an uh, like okay I add an account and everything else is created and invited and set up uh, that script could be built yep they haven't but <laughs> but well. they also get a lot of it for free just by virtue. So generally, they need to buy more seats for so things like GitHub and stuff. Yep. Or uh, Circle CI. But they don't have to like manually add me to Slack and all of that because everything goes just via the Google account. That's really nice. Yeah. So I got the Google account, I got the GitHub thing, and then I could go fairly far. And then there was some some stuff I ran into, sort of CI and CD stuff. Yep. And I ran into some Docker things that it like from the instructions it seemed like I needed. And setting it up, I real like he told me like no, you don't actually need those, so you can just skip that part. Okay. Not obvious from from the readme, but. Uh, and I think that's where, where this type of thing falls down. Either you have scripted and and have sort of a test suite for your onboarding automation, <laughs> yep. or you're going to be doing hand like hand uh, input and setting things up by hand. Yep. Uh, and I think that's a very good place to have a... Um, it's a very good reason to have that human uh, that's responsible for onboarding people you're going to need the person that's responsible for this person getting started yeah and i think beyond like beyond getting the things up and running because that's not all there is to onboarding uh, there's culture and there's there's a lot of aspects to like okay but how do we get from how do you find what feature you're building? How was that created? How does that feed into the next uh, release cycle? How are releases managed? Uh, what kind of testing uh, culture is there? Is there manual testing? What are you responsible for doing? What are others responsible for doing? Who do you need to let know? There's so much stuff that yeah. a document will never cover for. Indeed. And building trust. Yeah, and to have someone to ask, why are people doing? Yeah, and I think lowering that barrier is incredibly important. Yeah, 
because a lot of people will not ask unless they're sort of enforced to like for actually forced <laughs> to or at least there's a decent bit of pressure on them to actually ask yeah i have set up when when i brought on my assistant developer i set up my expectations for the role as a document and they explicitly state i expect you to uh, try things on your own and i expect you to tell me if you get stuck or if you get frustrated or if you get bored with something yep or like i don't know i don't know what i wrote verbatim but that, that's the gist of it at least like I expect you to fire off a message to me if you're if you're stuck on something and need help getting unstuck or if it would be helpful if we talked through it. I might not be instantly available and I expect you to keep trying to some extent, but I also expect you to... Tr so I know I wrote in like, I expect you to try to learn things. I expect you to want want to learn things, but I don't expect you to know all the things. Ah, I was going to say you have high expectations and then everything started to sound really sane. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so it's... And I, I do have, to some extent, high expectations because I... So I think one of the best ways of making people happier with the work they're doing for you is to be very clear on what you expect. Yeah. Because you cannot match expectations which are unclear. And you cannot... Like, if there, are, if there are expectations that I have of developers in general, which are my, potentially my problem, but I bring them to, my, to anyone I work with, stating those is helpful. If they're shitty... I need to do work about, <laughs> I need to do work on me and maybe I should keep them to myself. But if I can put them in a list and they don't look uh, sort of psychotic, uh, then I think it's a helpful list. And if you can be explicit about like, okay, but I actually want you to tell me if you're having trouble because it's normal to have trouble. I will throw you in the deep end occasionally. Yeah. Just tell me if you're swimming or sinking. Uh, <laughs> and I will try to check in and you will keep me posted and we'll figure it out. But most companies don't tell you what they're expecting. Indeed. Un unless you're very explicitly negotiating expectations. And that's called a contract. And we're like most people are terrible at it. Yeah, I was thinking about that. One of the things I I could have done, uh, but didn't do because I'm a beginner, um, so I didn't really think about it, was to negotiate expectations in the, well, sales interview. Or, because I was so focused on getting that engagement or that contract that I didn't really think about asking them questions. Like, what are your expectations of me? What do you want me to do? 
do I need to know something in particular before I start? What's um, and more questions? Yeah, there are always more questions. There's also an unfortunate thing where I think a lot of companies would frown at someone going, "Okay, but these are my expectations of you." Yeah, in the interview. Because you're not supposed to have expectations of the company because companies are big, inflexible things that cannot that cannot have that kind of relationship, except when they can, when they're negotiating for something they they want and know that they need to be flexible about. Yeah, I have seen such different conversations when I've been speaking to companies that really want me on board versus mm-hmm. the types of conversations I've had historically with companies uh, where where they weren't sure if they would want to hire me. Oh. Because those are different relationships. Like yep. there's a default sort of default which is mostly false as a developer because at a certain point of developer experience at least uh, you became you become more valued and sought after. Not necessarily more valuable, but more valued. Yeah. And then companies actually want to convince you to work for them, but they're not terribly used to that position. It's like, we have a ping pong table. Okay. Uh, but do you know what work-life balance is? Do you know what... Like, how do you handle paid time off? Um Okay, yeah. in Sweden, that's less of an issue because we have a very strong culture of paid time off. It's very good. <laughs> you screw me with my vacation. Uh, we are taking this to the court. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super grateful for all the people who has made sure that this works. It's, yeah. Yeah. My experience with companies that actually want to work with you or want you on board is that they start getting nervous about scaring you off, essentially. And Is that why people never talk about ping pong tables with you? <laughs> because I'm I'm allergic to ping pong. Yeah. No. No, I don't think that's that's usually not where the conversation ends up if you're if you've managed to hit that particular point in the negotiation then it's usually yeah then it's usually mostly about clearing away practicalities that could be issues uh, i've definitely heard people that would maybe normally be be going oh no unfortunately this is a standard formulation and we can't really change the contract and on the other end you have Oh, yeah, just let me know if there's any if you see anything that's weird and we can talk through it and make sure it's it's what you'd expect. Those are two two very different conversations. And just specific contracts and contract writing uh tends to get tricky regardless. Yeah. But I think onboarding also shifts I imagine there's a big difference in onboarding depending on whether the company really wants you on or they just feel like they're hiring another developer because they need another head and they 
they're not really committed to it. It's like, who is it that wants you in? Is it the dev team that has said, oh, we're drowning here. We need more hands. Or have you been talking to the CEO when they're like, yeah, I really like the ideas uh, we've had in this conversation. Uh, I want to bring you on and do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Those are entirely different angles. And I think the onboarding situation is very different. It's like I have more or less been dropped into situations where where I'm just a pair of hired hands and I've been worked in the situation where uh, a C-level executive goes, okay, just let me know if you need anything uh, and we'll go from there. Nice. And of course, I would get I wouldn't get anything and there are things that are higher priority than what i'm doing but it's uh, it means that my autonomy going in uh, is very different and those are different conversations they're different onboarding processes and they have different expectations of of the person being onboarded as well yeah hmm one interesting thing with the sales process or the negotiation all that is that well some amount of filtering can be done and some amount of of setting expectations of the client can be done yeah and also trying to figure out do they really need me or anyone else yeah. or do they just think that uh, I know that in the value based pricing model you try to talk people out of hiring you or contracting you yeah that's that's one uh, one published approach to it yeah for sure. yeah I really like it because it's so backwards or it feels so backwards yeah it's definitely counterintuitive and it is so I try that with a few sales calls and generally i've had i've had pretty good results it hasn't been like revolutionary to me yeah but i'm also not super practiced at it like most business people if you tell them like okay but why do you want to do why do you want to do this at all they're like yeah good question okay let's let's recap let's go back and uh or rather let's let's look at the foundations here why are we doing this and then uh, like those value pricing ideas don't work unless what you're doing is valuable and you have a certain amount of base authority on the subject cool i i don't see how (laughs) it's like one of the questions uh that i know jonathan starks uh, talks about is like um why would you work with why would you want to work with me uh and implicitly or explicitly you you essentially say why choose someone pricey like me why not outsource why not have someone internal do it and i definitely have worked with clients that are like no we'd rather work with you uh we know what you're about or like okay no from your previous project like we think you're pricey but uh, we've been very happy with the result and we know that we can't 
just buy happy with the results anywhere no <laughs> that's something that's that's something you establish and one once you've achieved that everyone knows it's a little bit of a crapshoot to sort of get a developer and see what you get yep so fi- finding something to hang your hat on like okay why do we want this guy or why why would this person know how to do this and if you can list some good reliable uh, or believable reasons then you can argue you can argue your skill set from a believable standpoint you can win win a lot of win a lot of contracts and you can make you can ask for more and you can also argue about like okay but should you really hire me what is it you're trying to achieve how do i succeed with you guys that's also one of the conversations that that i've heard come up in value pricing like okay but what does a success look like yeah it's not like okay what will i be building i'll be building x y and z it's like no but seriously what does i want to do a really good job what does success look like yeah and that's not your typical sort of interview conversation and it's it's not ap- applicable to your typical job either uh, i think there's a there's lessons to be learned there uh, and there are ways of sort of selling yourself or marketing yourself that can help in normal interview situations and i think being less afraid of negotiation is a powerful thing for normal normal employment interviews as well yeah but i also think you're limited by the cultural implications of an interview huh because there are expectations and you're not expected to sort of <laughs> put the company on trial and asking them to pitch why you should work with them and for some types of roles i think that culture is different for example if you're trying to hire a c-level executive yep so cto ceo coo cfo then i think you're much more trying to find someone with a strong profile and then trying to uh, find alignment with them negotiating with them figuring out if there's a, like strong common ground and if they can do and want to do the work that you need done at your company yep. the, i think at that level it's more common that you have a good grasp of what negotiation means and that everything is the negotiation and i think the assumption is that there's a negotiation going on but with with sort of individual contributor interviews i know that companies can be incredibly stiff around like no but we're not really we're not really having that conversation right now that's huh interesting i think it's like i i wouldn't go I wouldn't tell everyone, oh, negotiate as hard as you can on in every interview. I think ask them things and uh, actually push for for interesting answers. Yeah. But I don't think you can do it in the same way and it depends so much on what what they think you're worth to them. Yeah. Which is an ugly sort of ugly perspective. But I think it's kind of true. 
which doesn't make it less ugly. It's a it's a business negotiations. It's a business agreement that you're yeah. setting up, even though it's your livelihood. It's a business agreement, and that's yep. That's unfortunately the world we live in, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of people would benefit from recognizing that earlier. It can be a nice a- arrangement. It can be. It can be entirely, essentially, without conflict um, at the face of it. But there are so there are trade-offs being made. There are there's friction between employee and employer just by default. It's like you're costing me money. It would be very convenient if you cost me less money, but I'll be less happy if I get less money. Well, yeah. I'll be less happy if you get more money. <laughs> like I, both both parties want that money and want to do things with it. Yeah. So recognizing that there is a negotiation going on uh, is probably for the best. I've had clients say, can't you just charge less money? It would be so good. Uh, and I stopped saying yes to that now. Uh, <laughs> because I'm too old for that. Yeah, to me, that's a bit like, but have you considered the other option? You pay me more, and that would be very good. <laughs> it, yeah. it just doesn't make sense. I, I definitely had clients try to negotiate a little bit. And I've been like, no, sorry, the, the price stands. If there's anything else about this proposal that is that doesn't sit right, let me know. And we can talk through it. Is the scope wrong? In that case, we can probably adjust the price if we can remove the things yeah but i don't negotiate on the price it's not like you can get a discount because if we indeed if i do that i'm sort of agreeing that the price is arbitrary and it's not exactly arbitrary i figured out a price i think is good and i think a price that i i believe i can and should charge so what am i saying if i'm like no okay yeah you can have 20 percent like <laughs> that's not very believable i i know i've gotten a proposal for building a native app from some company and it was like two hundred thousand swedish or something wow that's almost nothing and we we pushed back a bit on it and they're like yeah yeah okay a uh, hundred thousand <laughs> it's like but now you're full of crap obviously yeah (laughs) how did it just get 50 percent cheaper that's not very believable (laughs) nah and it's like okay yeah you were trying for decent margins or you're going to cut corners uh it's one of them or both (laughs) yeah just figuring out what the client wants yeah so like stick to your pricing salary negotiation is trickier because people can go into that conversation with such vastly different uh, ideas of where what the budget is where it's going what it should be yeah it's yeah while usually for consulting engagement i don't do hourly nice but rather we have a conversation we figure out what needs to get done i create a proposal and an estimate and that's where the price comes in then we have a conversation about that proposal 
and then we figure out. Usually the proposal has a few different options as well. Uh, yeah, that's good to have something to negotiate over. Yeah, but that's that's harder in salary. Yeah. Uh, I have heard people say that like any number involved in a salary negotiation is up for negotiation. And I think that's about right. So maybe you can't get a better uh, salary, but maybe you can actually work part-time because that's something you want. Or maybe you could negotiate more paid time off. Yep. Or maybe you want other some other perks. Generally, I would say skip the perks focus on a getting a good salary because your salary grows by percentages generally. Yep. And if you negotiate a poor salary, it will grow poorly. Yeah. Just by compound effect, you will have lost a lot more money than whatever, whatever the gym card was. <laughs> oh, the infamous gym card. Uh, I have a friend who, uh, changed job to a new place and the new place didn't have a gym card as a perk but she got i think it was uh, 10,000 swedish kroner more each month so it was kind of all right anyway yeah and that's i think that's a perfectly fine approach to like okay we don't offer extra benefits um so so per you don't offer specific perks like cheaper gym cards or that kind of subsidy yep but you offer more cash i think that's okay because at least here in sweden you can't cut the foundational stuff like insurance and stuff you don't you don't have the whole american health insurance problem indeed there are some insurances but that's if you have a collective of tall, it's cool. Yeah, but they're also perks. They're on top of on top of the the basic ones and the non optional ones. Yeah. Exactly. I think a lot of employers also sort of miss that they they are setting some expectations with whatever they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like cutting benefits and Getting cash instead just makes me think of the whole base camp thing. Oh, you're gonna. <laughs> What's your take on the whole base camp thing? Uh, my take is that they had a very high profile, and generally people felt like they were doing well. They were doing things the right way in many cases. They were very high. So um, they talked. Uh, your ear off about how cool a place they base camp was to work yep and they were like okay but we're having all these uh, these good perks we're trying to treat people like humans we're trying to make sure that this is this is a fun place to work it's an interesting place to work it's a good challenging environment uh, and it seemed like they were doing everything quite well and then they hit this major uh, snag. So like internal strife and they wanted to clamp down on that and simplify things. Yep. I don't think it was much more dramatic than... <clears throat> uh, so to some extent, I don't think 
I don't think they were malicious. I think they were dumb. I agree. Or very, very blind, like big blind spot. And I think they were a little bit high on uh, on sort of the primary fuel of uh, being a good tech bro is that you take counterintuitive advice, such as the whole value pricing and why conversation. That's counterintuitive. And one reason... Yep that it feels powerful is because it's counterintuitive. It's not what you, well, one typical piece of advice, like charge more. If you're a consultant, charge more and you'll get better clients. Yep. Why? Because price sensitive clients will nickel and dime you to death. They will talk about price constantly. I've had plenty of clients that never ever discuss price once we've agreed on it. That's a good sign. And they are generally good clients. Yeah. I, I want to, to talk about a point before we return to Basecamp. Yeah. And that's the counterintuitive examples you've mentioned here. Work. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's very important. Yeah, but there are many counterintuitive things that work. Yeah, but you don't know there that. There are also many counterintuitive things that it's like, oh, I'm being so rebellious or I'm being... Like, um, this is a very disruptive idea. And it's like, yeah, okay, you're just, you're just being rude or you're being shitty or that doesn't actually work. There are counterintuitive things that are, uh, poor matches to reality and actually (laughs) where you should probably go with what's intuitive. Uh, yeah. So sometimes the data on counterintuitive doesn't check out and that's, uh, well, that's intuitive. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> this might be counterintuitive, but sometimes intuition works. <laughs> yeah, but the base camp thing. Yeah. The base camp thing. So I think they have a pretty strong default towards doing things a different way. It doesn't really matter if it's a good or bad way. They want to do it differently from the rest. So it's like, oh, we're getting, we're turning into a bigger company. We're having complexity. We're having, we're having committees and uh, shared uh, responsibility. And we're, we're hesitating on decisions. It's like, yeah, probably because your decisions are more complicated now. Yep. But they want, I think they just wanted to cut down on that complexity combined with being incredibly uncomfortable about the conversations they they'd been having internally and they just did not at all manage to sort of read what they were putting out in anyone else's voice and minds it was so tone deaf yep incredibly tone deaf and because they were they had been both put and strived to be on a pedestal they fell hard because some people have probably been waiting for for those high like uh, high and mighty full of themselves people to take a tumble and some people have simply like had expectations and were very very disappointed i was mostly disappointed i like to see a small company punch above their weight yeah same here uh, so to me this was a disappointment it was not a big shock in the way that it's like i I haven't followed them closely and I've gotten the idea that they can be fairly arrogant. Yeah. And that's usually not a 
good sign for acknowledging their mistakes and backing down. I did not think they would do this poorly at recognizing the mistake and backing down. And uh, true to form, they did counterintuitive things and uh, uh, highly publicized uh, things like offering a generous severance for anyone wanting to go. I guess that's a nice thing. And again, not reading the room, 30% of the company <laughs> left. Yeah. Do you think that offering a severance was a kind of a, not a bluff, but they didn't really think that people would leave or... I think they've published a post saying they did not expect people to take them up on that to that extent. <laughs> oops. Yeah, oops. Well, they did simplify enormously. They did simplify, uh, but they also set their house on fire, which is, which does simplify your life in some ways. In other ways, it sets your yeah. house on fire. Yeah. You've seen Fight Club, uh, right? Yeah. His life yeah. got simpler. Simplification. Totally. It, and strange. Yeah, in some but... aspects, it got simpler. It also did not do wonders for his mental health, for example. Yeah. And I imagine this did not do wonders for uh, the founders of Basecamp and their mental health. I don't think they found this uh, satisfying at all. I don't think this was fun for them. And uh, I hope it leads to reflections. I don't know. I really hope so. But too. one thing they did do was cut out benefits and like um, compensate it with more money. And I think there's a potential that the revenue sharing thing that they did add is actually fairly lucrative for Basecamp or for, for an employee of Basecamp. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know the numbers, so I don't know. But they did cut benefits and then like, okay, we'll, we'll cover the price of the benefits for a year or something. And then it's gone. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that's a good that's idea. That's a poor way of, <laughs> of comping that. For many reasons. Yeah, because one reason is because I'm Swedish and I expect to get some benefits just by existing because I'm a dirty socialist Swede. Um, so when I get ill, I want to be able to go to the ER without having to pay half of my money. Uh, I don't know. Or all my money, whatever. Lots of money. So much money. I just want that to be covered. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's another aspect of it is that uh, companies in the US usually get better deals on uh, those insurances, health insurances, than uh, people do. Yeah, uh, significantly. And it's so, very artificial and very weird yeah. in the US. Yeah. So, so even if uh, they would have said, okay, it's cool, we give you the money instead and you can do whatever you want with them. Yeah. Uh, it would still have been worse. I don't think they are cutting the health insurance, though. Uh, I, okay. I don't think that's the idea. But they had things like... Um, oh, had to do with things like uh, local produce and like 
it was a, a bunch of non-essential things yeah. along with some nice things along with but it tied into this whole thing where where they were they were being progressive yeah they had a brand and having these i guess leftist ideas and then they decided to cut them out and be very liber- very like market liberal instead yeah when you say leftist do you mean as seen in the US or as seen in the rest of the world so i think it's a bit of both <laughs> uh oh but not uh, it's not like deep uh, deep socialist ideas but <laughs> but the fact that they were on the they had benefits that leaned toward sort of environmentalism and cool one of the things they cut down was their diversity equity and inclusion uh, committee what <laughs> yeah they did they shut it off and that's also sort of uh founded in progressive ideas <laughs> even though it's very enterprisey to to have uh committees about that i guess uh i suppose so yeah uh, i haven't worked in companies that are quite that formally organized but but yeah i i think they they cut a bunch of stuff and felt like oh yeah we're being we're we're cutting back to the bone it's like and i i can understand the motivation it's like okay let's be bold let's like if you're going to do something it's more fun to be bold well yeah at least if you have a certain type of mentality and i do share some of that mentality i will not claim to be free of tech brodom <laughs> it's like yeah okay i want to move to the country and grow vegetables uh and if you talk to my wife like oh we live in the countryside and we do grow vegetables but yeah, you do. if you talk to my wife it's like yeah we might be able to do this over this amount of time and she's very sensible about it yep. and i'm like oh i want to grow all the vegetables i want to be entirely self-sufficient we should be able to eat only homegrown it's like yeah 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 <laughs> I tend yeah. to overdo things especially in my mind and I can see how they were like oh I will, I'm on a bit of a liberalist uh, or libertarian or whatever the ideology is at the moment over there kick and I feel like we should we should not have opinions here we should just do money and I think that's an absolutely rubbish play especially from their position of previously being quite engaged yep. and having quite a few opinions and participating in like political and social discourse yeah it's yep so this is setting expectations and then burning them to the beam ground oh i mean uh <clears throat> No, uh, so they they burnt that to the ground by setting high expectations and then not understanding apparently or just having a big old brain fart about what expectations they had set. Yep. It's like, you know your audience. <laughs> I, I really thought they were more savvy. Yeah, that's one of the greatest points of disappointment for me. I... I <laughs> It's like the end of uh, episode three, Star Wars. You are supposed to bring balance to the force. Like that. I've heard a lot of people dunking on them for 
tons of different reasons. It's like now uh, they're these tech bros are all the same, and it's like, sure, but I don't necessarily have a problem with the tech bro that is the same as everyone else, but walks the walk of someone more considerate, more empathetic, avoids doing weird shit uh, or harassing people in PMs or whatever. Like someone that actually lives up to the expectations of being a good progressive citizen. Yep. Even if they do harbor sort of internalized racism or internalized sexism or like they can have all the weird feelings inside. But if what they actually do is like, okay, no, I'm going to play this game correctly. It doesn't really matter. Yep. As long as it, it's not like, oh, and then on my weekends, I murder people to compensate. Like, oh <laughs> uh, yeah uh, well. so onboarding i think it's important to set expectations i think so too so don't do onboarding like Basecamp handled the latest thing i didn't know we were top we were topical in these conversations but apparently yeah sure um <laughs> no but if you're going to do onboarding don't burn your house to the ground is that is that a good takeaway yeah. that's a good takeaway don't start a fight club or on the other hand oh god we're never gonna finish this right um the wormhole goes deeper it does like oh wait we're digging ourselves a, a hole and i'm mixing metaphors so now it's a worm oh yep problems <laughs> okay like this uh onboarding we've talked about fight club the onboarding in fight club is stellar it's so good it's pretty good it is also uh bold and counterintuitive yep so <laughs> to start out you're not supposed to find out about it yep uh, but that's no but honestly like if I came to a workplace, okay, so, so Fight Club has a bunch of negative connotations because like, it, it appeals to a lot of machismo. Yeah. Uh, I just, I want to acknowledge that Fight Club does not have a sort of clean record in the culture. Oh, no, it doesn't. I liked the movie Fight Club plenty as a teen, and I still think that like, both the book and the movie are good and interesting. But I think they're a little bit too sexy for. <laughs> they sort of sell the wrong side a little bit too well. It might be Brad Pitt. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, if you came to a new workplace and they're like, <laughs> the first rule of onboarding is you have to commit. <laughs> No, but and then they sit down with you and make sure that you get your first change into the code base. I would find, yeah, I think that would be a nice process. It's a little bit of ritual. Uh, you remove your shoes, you remove your tie if you have one. I don't like ties at work, so that that sounds good to me. Yeah, same. No here. shirts, no shoes. Shirts, I think that could be controversial. 
Yeah, you should wear your shirt at work. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so we need we need to modify this a bit, but we've already done so, so let's go ahead. But essentially, uh having someone uh do work together with someone who's already been there for a bit early on. Like one of the things I haven't mentioned that I really believe in for onboarding is pairing. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. Did we? We did, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. When we talked about code review. We also talked about pairing and onboarding. Oh, right. So so not not today. Not today. (laughs) A lot of pairing does a ton of work, both implicitly and explicitly for teaching. It's like you don't have to be a perfect teacher to teach someone about a system by pairing with them. I would generally suggest giving uh, shadowing a try. So when a new uh, person is onboarded, maybe they don't get their own tasks right off the bat. Maybe they get one, uh, a small one or, or something, but just have them pair up with someone who is already there and who is doing work and help them. Then they'll see like, oh, you start your environment this way. You do this, you do that, da, 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 da. Okay. A bunch of implicit knowledge transferred, regardless of how good a teacher the the other person is. Yeah, that's good stuff. 